attention now to the preaching of the Word of God. And you'll notice in the bulletin, uh, we're giving attention to Psalm 51, verse 1. And yet, by verse 1, we mean what is verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible, which in your Bibles is the title. And so, we have, of course, what we would call Psalm 51, verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, and so on. But in the Hebrew Bible, the first verse is what is given as the title. And so you'll notice there are times when our English Bibles supply additional helps, which we might call titles. For instance, in the text before me, there's a little title, David's Prayer for Remission of Sins. That's not an inspired text, but what your Bible and mine will have is the inspired text in the preface or the title, To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, from which then the singing part is before us, have mercy upon me, O God, and so on. So the word of God before us this evening is there in the title, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now this is instructive to us, as not only it gives context to the psalm, And it gives us, as it were, the historical event which led to such a clear confession and testimony of repentance. But it also instructs us in just how far a believer may go in the course of sin and how magnificent God's grace is to bring them back, to recall them, to bring them to confess their sins and repent And so before us is this beautiful testimony of the Lord's great grace. And as we consider it this afternoon, we hope in the Lord's mercy to work through the whole of this psalm over the next number of weeks and the Sabbath afternoon. And so we give attention to this theme that is much before us in Psalm 51 of sin and grace. And particularly this evening, looking at the Lord's pursuit. Sin and grace are foundational themes in and throughout Scripture. In fact, you can't go far into the Bible before encountering this very early on. Of course, there is a chapter, uh, two chapters that are unmarred by the sin of man. The first two chapters of the Bible, which recounts to us the creation of the world. And yet, in chapter 3, we have the introduction of sin by the fall of Adam and the sin as well of Eve. And from there on, there's never a chapter that has nothing to do with sin, whether recounting it, testifying of the remedy, even the final two chapters of the Bible, though they are full of the riches of grace and the glory of God's kingdom, yet those must be read in light of the conquest and the conquering and the redemption and the remission and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So throughout the Scriptures... The theme of sin and grace mark every page, but perhaps the first, where we find the testimony of creation, the act of it itself. Moreover, these themes capture well the experience of every believing soul. It's true that sin is a common theme to all living souls, but it's particularly true that for the believer, The interplay, if we can say it that way, between sin and grace is a constant theme in our lives. So Paul speaks of it in some summary fashion. The good that I would, 
So there's testimony of grace. My heart is renewed to delight in the law of God up to the inward man. The good that I would, I do not. And that which I do, I would not. There's this warring within his soul. There's the reality of sin and grace in the believer. Such themes will never be absent from the believer, though the way they are present will develop and mature and change through the experiences that we encounter. Psalm 51 is a tremendous psalm of confession and of repentance. And so sometimes there's this sinner in their grievous sin, and they say, well, it's not that big of a deal because after all, David's sin, look how heinous his sin was, to which we say, you're absolutely right. David sinned heinously, wickedly, grievously, inexcusably. But if you wish to appeal to David's sin for any degree of comfort, you must as well show some likeness to David's confession and repentance, which is here before us. And we hope to uh, go through this psalm and by it gain the Lord's help in our own growth of confessing our sins and the assurance of our sins being forgiven, which is of great comfort, and of renewed desires to serve faithfully in the Lord's kingdom, as you'll find throughout this psalm. Tonight, we wish to notice particularly this inspired title. Notice the words, To the Chief Musician. This reminds us that this psalm is not merely something for private devotion. It's something meant for public Worship. It's handed over. And so, though it is the personal confession of David himself, it is provided over to the public use of God's worship and praise. It is a psalm of David. The scriptures, among other perfections and beauties that are therein, one such display is the fact that there is no covering of the wickedness of God's children. It's a testimony. So you think of this for a moment. Like, you know, false religions will take it a tremendous offense if you speak about the sins of their people. And yet the Scriptures, the book of the true religion, is itself exposing the sins of its people. And here, David is himself the author of that which reminds us of his sin, which is a testimony of grace. Grace is that which doesn't glory in sin, but is not hesitant to confess it to the glory of God who forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression. We don't glory in our perfection because we don't have perfection in ourselves. We glory in God's grace. And this is what is the theme of the psalm before us. Notice it recounts the occasion that gave rise to this psalm. It speaks of David who had gone in to Bathsheba. It is, of course, perhaps it's fair to say the darkest season of David's spiritual walk. And so that's recounted in one chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read chapter 12 earlier, and it's a quick chapter, quite frankly. Here he is, when kings go off to war, he stays back. Perhaps his first deficiency should have gone out to lead. He stayed back. He eyes 
Bathsheba bathing. He says, who is this? And so on. He brings her to himself. He commits adultery. And then she's pregnant. And he tries to arrange for the covering of his sin by bringing the soldier, one of David's mighty men, by the way, recounted in Scripture, bring him home so that there would be relations had and that the pregnancy could be then put upon Uriah. But Uriah, a most righteous man, says, how can I go home to my house, have the comforts of my wife and the privileges thereof, when my fellow soldiers are out in the night sleeping in the open air in warfare? David uh, loses all hope of covering his sin and so Think of this, he writes a letter to Joab the commander and he seals that letter, places it in Uriah's hand and says, when you get back to Joab, hand him this letter. Joab opens the letter from Uriah's hand and David says, find out a place where you can put Uriah so that he dies in the battle. And this happens. Remember, what did Nathan say? He says, you're the man, you're guilty of putting this man to death. So this occasion is not just that particular act of uh, adultery, but it is the whole season of his adultery, his murder, his denial, and so on. But you'll also notice the occasion is particularly when Nathan the prophet came unto him. We read that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan presents this parable to uh, prepare David. David becomes angered, says that man shall surely die. Notice he precedes it with an oath. As the Lord liveth, that man shall surely die. And Nathan, without hesitation, says, Thou art the man. Now, what's astonishing is David doesn't say, Nathan, how dare you? Which is what, of course, an unconvicted sinner would do. Nathan Word, Nathan's word comes to him as the Lord appointed, and it pierces David's heart so that David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, we'll consider more of that in time to come, but notice what comes from that is this most beautiful expression of confession of sin, which opens verses 1 and 2. Uh, upon this great hope of God's grace and the request for pardon and later the request for purifying and the request to be restored and to serve and to help others that they would be turned unto the Lord. A tremendous psalm. And yet notice how it all begins. It begins not because David was this great man. It begins because God had sent Nathan the prophet to reprove David. Think of this for a moment. If Nathan was, as some are today, as in every day, one who thought, well, that's going to be a tough call. Like, you want me to go to David and say that you're the man who sinned? I'm just going to sort of tone it down. Well, if that were the case, we wouldn't have such a beautiful testimony of grace and repentance. If David had been as many false kings and faithless kings and never permitted searching prophets to come, David would have been hardened in his sin. Now think for a moment, whereas in our day people will say things like, well, that's too searching, that's too close, that's too uh, uh, 
overwhelming of my soul. You're making me think about my sin. Brethren, notice something here. One of the richest manifestations of the Lord's mercy, love, and care is to raise up a searching ministry to face us with our sins in order that, by His grace, we would repent and be brought again unto faith and the exercise of that faith in holiness. Well, there's much more to be considered But this evening, consider three things. Firstly, how it is that God graciously pursues His sinning people. Secondly, how God does this by His Word. And thirdly, why it is He does so. So firstly then, God is the one who graciously pursues His sinning people. Think of this for a moment. David we have no doubt, but was a believer. There's testimony of that in the Scriptures, both before and after and so on. And yet, remember what the title says. After he, that is David, had gone in to Bathsheba. Think of what this reminds us to, to, to remember. It reminds us that David, firstly, had grievously sinned. It's not just a heart sin, if we can say something is just. It's not just a slip of speech. It's not just a provocation in the heat of the moment. There is a grievous sin here before us. So consider this if you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. When we read in the title, after he had gone into Bathsheba, it's worthy of our considering of that very thing. So notice in verse 4, 2 Samuel 11 and verse 4, David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And so there is a deliberate pursuit of this. He's sending messengers. He brings her. It's not as if they're sort of caught in a moment, which is still inexcusable. He is strategically pursuing this matter. We talk about murder in the heat of the moment. And we speak of cold-blooded murder. Well, if we can speak of it for a moment, this is the equivalent of cold-blooded murder. It's calculated, it's deliberate, it's thought out, it's planned, right? David is sitting there and he's thinking this through. He's not just in the moment, overcome by the power of the moment. He's strategically pursuing this course. He brings her unto himself. He has the relations. He sends her back. And so all of this is testifying of this thoughtful, this deliberate rebellion against God. David knew God's law. David has already given us psalms which speak of God's law. And surely this isn't some finer point of the application of God's commandments. This is something so black and white Thou shalt not commit adultery. And David, well aware of that, yet calculatingly pursues it. It's a grievous sin, but it doesn't stop there. Notice in verse 15, of course, the word comes, listen, I am with child. Now this is a big problem, of course, because Bathsheba's husband is on the field of battle. And so how would it be that she could be with child 
if it is that her husband is away. So David starts to work further, and he sends and says, send me Uriah the Hittite, verse 6. So he's calculating, working through this. Uriah shows his virtue and says, I can't go into my house and enjoy the comforts. I have a calling. I'm a soldier. I belong on the field of battle. And so Uriah avoids the very thing that, unbeknownst to him, David was ordering to cover up his own sin. So one more thing we see is David is, in a calculated fashion, seeking as a clever and cunning craftsman to cover up his sin. Here's the great error. Here's the great sin. Here's what I'm going to do to put in place that which will cover my sin. Then I'll just sort of skirt on through, and this will never be an issue again. But here's the problem. Uriah stands faithful. Unlike David, who when the season came for kings to go forth to battle, who stayed back, Uriah, when he's sent and called from the battle, maintains his vigilance, and so David's caught. So what does David do? Well, you'll notice it says in verse 14 that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter says, verse 15, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And so it is that Joab does it and sends the letter that it is done as you have said. What's the point? David is involved in grievous sin. It's tremendously grievous And it's something of a reminder for us. David was a man after God's own heart. And, of course, that expression doesn't mean he was perfect in all ways. But it does remind us of however much grace we may think we've attained, and David had attained much. Never does there come a point in our lives where we should think, I've attained so much that I am free from these more base temptations. David was a man who had denied himself much, Do you remember the tenderness of David's heart when he cut off but a portion of Saul's robe? When he did that, it says his heart smote him. He couldn't live with himself. He was overwhelmed with conviction such that he was forced to acknowledge the same. And now it is he's invested in a course of sin most clearly and wickedly rebelling against God's Word. It's the same David. Brethren, when we come to Christ's Word and says such things as, watch, this isn't something for the lesser and more inexperienced Christian. This is for all of us. Do you remember Paul who says, listen, after I've preached to others, I buffet myself. I beat in myself. I take great constraints upon myself lest I, in the end, would make shipwreck of the faith. This is the point. Brethren, David is a reminder not to the initiate, not to the young person alone. He is a warning to them. But he's a warning to the man or woman experienced and matured in grace that makes us remember that never does there come a day in this life where we are free from temptation. It'd be a thought to consider for a moment meeting David when his heart smote him over the cutting of Saul's robe to ask him this question, David, can you imagine a day when you would with deliberate intention pursue a woman, not your wife, 
and where you would imagine an instance where you would send a man by your murderous plot to his death. That David, whose heart smote him over the cutting off of the robe of the Lord's anointed, how could he ever imagine that? Similar is it not to Peter. Peter, when he says, listen, though all men should forsake you, though all men should deny you, it's surely not I. Peter, do you think that's the case? I tell you tonight, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Brethren, here's the point. David's grievous sin is a reminder of how much sin grievously remains in us. That except it be put to death, as Paul calls us in Romans, day by day, it should fester and mount up in due time. So here's David's grievous sin. But notice, there's worse still. David had, for a season, impenitently sinned. He was without repentance for a long season. It doesn't take us much effort to understand this. Likely, a month passed between the commission of adultery and the discovery of the pregnancy. So somewhere around two weeks to a month or so has passed, and David is carrying on in his life. He's going on in his normal experience. He's keeping up tabs with what's going on in the battlefield. He's remembering and having relations with his uh, legitimate wife. He's counseling and doing these things. His whole life is going on as normal. Now we have to think of this for a moment. What else would be going on in Jerusalem where David was? There's the temple. David would have passed by the temple, perhaps would have brought sacrifices to the temple, surely would have known of the temple's testimony. And yet David carries on. And then the letter comes. I am with child. And it's not then that David says, what have I done? I've defamed God's name. I've defamed my office. I have done wickedly. And I have broken a family apart. Instead, he starts to think, how can I cover this up? There's no penitence. There's no repentance here. He's going on. But what happens? He sends Uriah, gets Uriah. That fails. So we're into a month plus another week or so. Who knows how long. But finally what happens is Uriah is murdered and Bathsheba is taken to be with David, and the child is born. The reason we know that is because, as you saw in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan says, this child shall be put to death, shall die. And so it's not as if Bathsheba is still bearing and then brings forth the child. The child is born. So what's taken place? Nine months of continued impenitence. Now what that means, brethren, is there have been feast days, that have been observed in Israel. There have been ceremonial days that David himself would have taken part in. There is the worship of God that he would have participated in. And all the while, his heart, as a regenerate person, is, relatively speaking, hardened. He's sitting there before the means of grace. The sacrifices are offered. He, he smells the smells. He hears the trumpets. He uh, uh, brings offerings. And yet his heart is hardened in sin. This is a testimony of the wickedness even 
of God's people that can take place. And notice, it's after that. So here's the point. God is one who sends Nathan to David after all of this had taken place. We don't know all the details of what's transpired in those nine months plus, but we do know that what hasn't transpired is any real repentance. And so it's then that God is pursuing David. Here's the point. David isn't in his house saying, I'm undone. Woe is me. I need to figure this out. I need to pursue God. I need help. I need counsel. The whole sign of David is fundamentally carelessness in the weightier things of God's law. It is fundamentally a hardness of heart that's showing itself in David's life. And yet, what is it that God does? He sends Nathan. And so we consider how God is pursuing His people. Notice it's not He's pursuing His penitent people. He's pursuing His sinning people. And brethren, this should be of no little encouragement to us. God is such a God who pursues His people even in their sins. Here's a picture. You want a picture of what Christ means when He says, I leave the ninety and nine to seek the one that has gone astray. Here's the one who has gone astray and who pursues Him. It's God. Well, consider then how God pursues Him, which is by His Word. Notice, when Nathan the prophet came unto Him. And this is, of course, important because of what's stated. Nathan is a prophet. He's not just a friend. He's not just some counselor. He is one who has been called and qualified to office to declare the Word of God. And so God orders the ministry of the Word to pursue David. It's astonishing, isn't it? We don't know what's going on in David's life, but you know, as I know from experience, that when we are deadening in sin, we have less concern about the Word of God. It's a book that we might sort of keep up, as it were, in appearance. We read it so we can say we read it. We know little and less of the meditating upon God's Word, of that earnest request, search me, O God, and know me, try me, see if there be any anxious way within me. It seems that this is the case with David. And yet it's God who sends Nathan, and the Word searches out David. And in doing so, what we see here is the Lord pursuing one of His children by His Word. That's what Nathan the prophet is. Nathan as a prophet is, as it were, the mouthpiece of God. There are some in this world who would think it a tremendous blessing were they never to read the Bible again, were the Bible to become a forgotten book, were they never to set foot in a church again. And they have all of their pretended reasons, but fundamentally the reason is this. Men love darkness rather than light. And even among God's children, when we embrace for a season the realm of sin and rebellion, we would rather hide out there than be re-exposed to the Word of God which would expose us. But here's the great blessing for all God's chosen ones. He doesn't allow His people to remain in darkness. We can look at David and we can rightly wonder why is it that God would pursue David? 
it's something to consider. There are sins that God's people commit in many ways that outdo the sins of those who aren't His people. And we can stumble at that when we wrongly think and say, why is it? You know, you look at the lives of Jacob and Esau, and there's a part of our thought that says, it doesn't make much sense. You know, Jacob was a scoundrel, what he did to his brother Esau. And yet what's being reminded is this, God is gracious. God has sovereignly said, I will save you. And when we start to look and say, why is it? Is David a better man? Is Jacob a better man? The answer is fundamentally and resoundingly, no. It's because God has chosen to save a people, and He, in choosing to save them, will save them. He will deliver them from sin. He will bring them to faith and repentance. He will forgive their sins by His grace. And that's what you see here in God sending Nathan. He's saying, David is one I've appointed unto salvation, and I will not permit David to go into the course of sin unto his own damnation. Notice how clearly this is stated in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So we read in the title that Nathan the prophet went unto him, but notice in 2 Samuel 12 verse 1, it doesn't just say Nathan went unto David, but it says, and the Lord, that is Jehovah, sent Nathan unto David. So we can put it together and say this, Nathan went unto David because the Lord sent Nathan to David. So when we see this, we see the Lord ordering of His Word, pursuing His people in their sin. And it's not just that this is the only way that that happens. There are stories that you know and I know. Our own experience may likewise confirm the same There's the ordinary way that we come and perhaps we're here because our parents or grandparents, our spouse, whoever it is, are are, are saying you ought to go to church. Our own conscience perhaps says we ought to go to church. There's no real delight in it. And yet there God's Word is read and it pierces us. There God's Word is preached and it pierces us. Perhaps it's a bit less ordinary as we're sick and as a minister in our denomination some time ago, was sick and his window open, and he an unconverted man. Yet a street preacher walks up and is preaching to people that he sees and he thinks, this is the ones to whom I'm laboring. Unbeknownst to the street preacher, the window above him is open, and the man listening, dead in his sins, sick in his body, hears the gospel, is convicted and brought to faith and can never find out who that street preacher is. You think of Augustine, who is there with all of his wickedness, all of his lewdness, and there he is, coming as it were to the end of himself. And this small voice, take up and read, and he opens God's Word. And he's brought to be convicted, and brought to faith. The point is this, there are countless ways God does it, but He is pleased to order His Word to search us out. There's an expression that can be wrongly misunderstood, of course, wrongly understood, and yet can be helpfully understood as well in calling the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven that hunts us down. He's on the trail. He's on the scent. And He pursues us. However far we might go into sin, and oh, brethren, look how far David went into sin. 
He wasn't flirting with it. He wasn't just sort of putting his toes across the line. He had, as it were, jumped ship and he had gone into the depths of iniquity for a period of no fewer than nine months' time. And yet God pursues after him. And how does he do it? He orders his word to convince and convict David of his sin. Well, there's something here for us. How great a privilege it is, if ever we've sinned, that God has ordered it for us to hear His Word again. There are times when we sin and it's, as it were, we discover later that we have sinned. There are other times where we sin going into it knowing it's sinful. Lord willing, there are few if ever such times as so clear as David that it's a calculated sin. That ever you should hear the Word again after any of those sins is an incalculable, inestimable blessing because it is the only means to reclaim us. You can't reclaim your soul by spending gobs of money on some guru. You know, there was all this to do about Thanksgiving and Black Friday sale and Cyber Monday, which turns into Cyber Week and Cyber Month, and all of these things for sale. And if you get on the internet, you're trying to watch a video and you have all these things. Do this now and you'll be better. Listen to this. Read this book. Do all these things. And people spend gobs of money on counselors and therapies and uh, uh, psychologists and all of these things. And they have all their appointments. But they fail to give attention to that which is the, ex- the, the, the essential need if ever there should be change. So there are people about like, well, i got to be true to myself, and the only way to be happy is if I'm true to myself. David was true to himself when he lusted and committed sin with Bathsheba. He was true to himself when he put Uriah to death. But what did that do? It didn't bring him any gladness in the end or any happiness. It ruined his family. The only thing that saved David was the Lord's word of, catch this, reproof. The first word out of Nathan's mouth was this when it was coming to David. You're the man. You're the one who is guilty of sin. You're the one who is guilty of wickedness. You're the one who is worthy of death. Who is that that is ordering His Word? It's God through Nathan. And so there are people today that say, you know, broken people, they don't need a searching ministry. Bro, you know, sinful people, they don't need to hear about their sin. But the reality is, there is the need to hear about sin, so long as it is coupled with the message of grace. But what sinners in their sin want is just comfort. Just, you know, yeah, I know I did bad, but it'll be okay. Everything's going to work out. Everything will be fine. But the Lord will not have it so because He knows that that's not going to work out. That's not going to be where uh, happiness is found. And so He orders this word of reproof. You can think of it this way, children. If you start to have something that becomes inflamed on your hand and it's infected and you say, when I touch this, it hurts, and it's clear it's an infection, your mom and dad will know, you know what, that needs to be lanced. It needs to be cut so that the infection comes out. Well, what happens with sinners who are not privileged to have 
the Word of God reproving and rebuking is sinners go about their whole life covering up their wickedness and thinking, if you come near this, it's going to hurt. But what happens is the infection worsens and worsens and worsens. Whereas God says, as a loving parent says, as a good doctor would say, you know, we have to restrain them because we have to get to that which is the problem. And so God orders Nathan, sends him to David and says, you're the man. David is pierced through. But it's that piercing which is actually the evidence of love. Here's the point. The world thinks it's loving to let them go on in their sin. And there are times when we think it's loving to leave me alone in my sin. But God knows it's loving to address our sins, to reprove and correct us about our sins. Not for the sake of pain. No loving doctor merely likes to puncture a wound because it causes pain. Rather, they do that because it is the means unto health. And the same is true of God toward us. He convicts us because it's a means unto health, spiritual health. So God is pursuing David by his word. But remember, Nathan doesn't only come with the word of reproof. That was what was first needed. But he also comes with a word of grace. The Lord hath put away thy sin. It's a word of forgiveness. It's a word of assurance. And so the ministry of the word comes to David and it testifies against him for his sin. It testifies for him by the Lord's grace. These two make up the pursuit of God pursuing his people. He will not, as it were, ignore their sins. He will not say, well, not a big deal. After all, they're my children. He will address them because of their sins, about their sins, because they're his children. And he will restore them by his grace. You know, this is what parents understand, or at least they used to understand. You know, their children come home and they say, well, listen, you know, Billy's parents let him do whatever he wants. He can stay out. He can watch these things. He can do those things. And the parents used to say, well, listen, I'm not Billy's mom. I'm not Billy's dad. In my house, because I love you, you're not going to do those things. Well, that's what God is doing in his house. He's coming to his children. He's saying, you're my child. Sure, I'll let those who are appointed unto death to pursue their death. But I'm not going to permit that in your life because I love you. And so he orders the convicting word. But with that, so soon as the conviction grips... He orders the word of comfort. The Lord hath put away thy sins. And yet the word carries on of chastening and discipline. And so the Lord is pursuing His people by the ministry of His word. Brethren, this is one reason we prioritize the ministry of the word. Because we know enough about ourselves to acknowledge what the Lord says of our hearts. The heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked, who can know it? How many times has there been in your life and mine where we would take inventory? I think things are pretty good. Only all of a sudden to search the Scriptures, a sermon comes, a book is read, and we say, I was a wrong judge. I was living in sin. I was doing what was wrong. I was pursuing what was contrary to God's Word. Why did that come to us? Well, two reasons. 
fundamentally, essentially, because God in His mercy loves us and He was reproving us. But secondly, it was instrumentally by His Word. This is why we take time to expose ourselves to God's Word, to search us, to try us, to test us. This is why before reading, we say things like, Lord, open mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things from thy law. Why we say, Lord, search me, examine me, test me, try me. Because we're acknowledging something. We're acknowledging that we can be our worst counselors. Because isn't it the case? I mean, we know this. We have this tendency to say, well, I spoke that way because she spoke this way, he spoke that way. And what we're doing subtly is we're shifting the blame upon the other person. You know, perhaps David could have said, well, you know, I committed this sin because she was out there doing what she was doing. You have all of these ridiculous antics that we, by desperate wickedness, pursue. But God instead pursues us by His Word. So, brethren, here's something that we can take from this. It's true, God can pursue us without, as it were, our active searching of the Scriptures But how much better is it for us to expose ourselves to the Word, the light of it, and to come regularly before it saying, Lord, as I read, if there's a wicked thought in me, expose it. If there's been a wicked action in me, expose it. If there's been a wicked inclination in me, expose it. Is it regularly the case that you hear a sermon or you read God's Word and say, that's what so-and-so needs to hear? Well, that's not illegitimate. There are times when that strikes us and we say, you know what, it would be beneficial. We might send the sermon and say, hey, brother, you should listen to this. It would be helpful. Or we might think, that's a convicting sermon that so-and-so needs to hear because they're struggling with that. That may be legitimate. But brethren, how often is it the case that we hear a sermon or read a text and we say, I need to deal with that in my life. That's the mark of grace when we receive God's testimony and we deal with it, as it were, by His grace. And we'll see that in David's life, this beautiful expression of a heart humbled by God's grace, relying solely upon God's mercy and desiring repentance. Well, notice then lastly, the reason that God pursues this. Notice, to what end did God send Nathan? We have it in the history as we read, but you also have it in the psalm before us. David was brought to confess his sins and repent of the sin as well. We mentioned earlier, some people will at times say, well, what about David? He sinned so grievously, and you know, why are you so concerned about my sin? Well, when David sinned, grievously as he did, God was concerned about his sin. David wasn't. God sent Nathan Nathan's word was blessed, and notice what happens. David confesses his sin unequivocally. He comes and he says, as you'll see it in verses 1 through 9, he testifies of my transgressions, verse 1, mine iniquity, verse 10, my sin, or 2, my sin, verse 2, my transgressions, verse 3, my sin, verse 3, Uh, Against thee, the only, have I sinned, verse 4, and done this evil in thy sight, verse 4. 
Verse 5, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, and so on. Here's the point. David isn't just giving lip service to, yeah, yeah, I get it, I've sinned, this is bad. Look at the tears in my eyes. He is expressing with sincerity the depth of his iniquity. And moreover, he's brought to confess it in such a way that has zero indication that he deserves to be received. Notice the expression, have mercy upon me. He doesn't say, listen, you've had mercy on others, so have mercy on me, what's the big deal? His appeal is strictly and solely to the unmerited favor of God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. The people who like to point to David and say, not a big deal, why are you so concerned about my sin? do not have the conception that David did of the magnitude both of his sin and the magnitude of the largeness of God's mercies. And so he confesses his sin and he relies upon the blood of Jesus Christ as we'll see. But that's not all that happens. God is bringing David from ignoring his sin to confess his sin. He's bringing David from the reliance upon himself to the reliance upon God's grace. But he's also bringing David back in line. He's bringing David back to repentance, back to faithfulness. And so you see this in verses 10 and following. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right that is a steadfast spirit within me. What's he saying? I don't want to live like I've lived for the past nine months of my life. I am forsaking that. I'm cutting that off. But I need you to create it in me. I don't just want to say the right things. I don't just want to tick the right boxes. I want from the inmost part of my being to be purified unto a holiness that would walk with you. But it doesn't stop there. His desire is to assist transgressors. Notice verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He's been transformed himself such that he wants others to be transformed as well. So the person that says, listen, I've confessed my sin, I've cried, my tears have fallen, and yet their life is unchanged, they don't know what David went through. They can appeal to David's life, but it's a false appeal. The one who says, listen, I don't live by my merit, I live by God's mercy, and yet their life continues unchanged, they don't know God's mercy. God's mercy not only pardons, It purifies, and you see that in David's life. And brethren, here's the question. Where did that process begin? It began with a prophet going to David and saying, David, you've sinned. All of the riches of transforming grace that David now experiences, and brethren, think of this for a moment that the church has ever expressed with the firmest of faith and the most comforting assurance as we take these words up in Psalm, all came because God pursued David and said, David, you've sinned. You're liable to judgment. You're worthy of death. And yet I've put away your sin. All of that comes not because of Nathan the prophet. It comes because of a loving God who orders His Word for the conviction 
and the restoration of His people. God is doing this because He loves His people. He loves them in spite of their sin. This does nothing to give us this thought of, well, God loves us in spite of our sin, so who cares about our sin? No, no. God loves us in spite of our sin, so He sends His Word to correct us about our sin, to bring us to confess our sins, to repent of our sins. This is the testimony of a loving God who will not allow us, as it were, to continue in the course of rebellion against Him. So here we see, among other things, what a depth even a believer may fall by his sin. Brethren, David was a mature man at this time. And yet David, through his own watchlessness, was brought into tremendous depths of sin. We have need to take heed. Far better is it to be watchful and deny ourselves than to become careless and enter into the course that David did. It may be, though, that we have found ourselves entertaining or even engaged in sin. Now, this passage is not given to us to comfort us in our sin, but rather to comfort us about God's grace regarding our sin. Not to leave us in our sin, but to remind us that there is hope by God's grace to bring us both forgiveness and repentance. And this is no little blessing. Because there are seasons when we've sinned that we start to hesitate. If I go to church, if I hear God's Word, if I open God's Word, only bad things are going to happen. I know what's going to happen, but brethren, here's the encouragement. David was engrossed in wickedness And yet God in love sent to David for his benefit to confess and repent his sin. Yes, there were trials that came, but we ought not to neglect that there were blessings that came as well. The Lord in his love is a God, think of how Micah says it, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth sin and passeth by the transgression of his people? There's no God like our God. A God who both condemns sin and yet forgives sin and does so by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it is so that you stand, as it were, convinced and convicted of your sins and you sit there and you're wondering how is it that the Lord Himself could ever find any delight in you again, well, brethren, it's not because of you and your own righteousness, but it's because of His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the path, confessing our sin, relying upon God's grace, and by His grace, being brought to repentance. So brethren, prioritize the ministry of the Word when we're conscious of our sin, when we're not conscious of our sin. Because it is by His Word that He not only convicts, but that He brings us to discern again the riches of His grace for our soul's repentance, confession of our sin, and our restoration to the fellowship of God in the course of faith and holiness. Would you stand with me for prayer?